I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor. This week, The Economist asks, can the open web survive? Countries that violate the basic rights of Internet users. There may be in certain areas closing that Internet up in some way. Somebody will say, oh, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. These are foolish people. More information than at any time in human history at, at a touch of a button. A means of communication, even in extremists, that we cannot read. Today, the web faces a number of challenges to its openness. So who better to ask what this means for the future than the man who started it all? Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, will be telling us where he stands on each of the crucial arguments that are shaping the medium that he created. But, you know, if you're going to go to the trouble of getting all the, co- the connectivity to somebody and then you're going to take them and make them think the Internet is just your own walled garden, it's such a shame because, in fact, you could give them access to an open Internet. Walls are indeed going up across the web. Facebook is like a gated community and also in some countries offers a limited subset of sites free of charge on mobile phones. Many people are using ad blockers. Companies want encryption to protect their intellectual property while users want it to protect their privacy and governments citing our security want to be able to read everything no matter what. Meanwhile, the web quietly continues to transform our lives at work, at home and in between. I'm joined in The Economist studio by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who originally created the web in 1989 and is now head of the W3C, a standards body which acts like the web's United Nations. Now, you've fought to maintain the openness of the web, quite literally, from the beginning. What's the biggest threat to that openness today? Well, it's, uh, it's always been that it should be controlled by something large, whether it's a powerful country, a government or a corporation. If it was controlled by one organisation, then that would be effectively the end of it as an open platform. So how do you prevent a single entity, whether it's a, a company or a country, from exerting too much control in practice? There's a huge number of fronts on which we, we have to battle. But, for example, trying to uh, make sure that countries don't introduce laws which decrease the power of the for example, don't put in uh, inappropriate laws, uh, as the, the UK government is trying to do at the moment, to give the government too much power to spy on citizens or to block what they access. So you established a web index in 2012 to measure the web's impact on development and human rights. And you can go and look on the website and see, you know, how many countries have passed laws giving people the right to use cryptography or uh, have passed rules uh, guaranteeing net neutrality and so on. Having gathered the data on that for a while, are things moving in the right direction or are they getting worse? In general, there is a move online that is clear that when we started the Web Foundation, only 20 percent of people, still less than half the people in the world actually use the web. So in general, there is a big move online. 
line. But unfortunately, it's not clear that there's an open move towards greater openness. There's been a use of government, the excuse, if you like, of terrorist attacks to try to get people to give away too much, too much of their individual power as citizens. Then there's also the question of broadening access. So we've recently had this argument in India about Facebook and its free basics. And in fact, um, we asked some of our readers to suggest questions that we might want to put to you. And a couple of them raised exactly this issue. Essentially, some people say that that access to a limited subset of websites is better than nothing at all. Do you think that's right? I think it's a tempting argument. But, you know, if you're going to go to the trouble of getting all the, co- the connectivity to somebody and then you're going to take them and make them think the Internet is just your own walled garden, to start with, it's a very powerful form of control over somebody's life, their ideas, their philosophy, their religion potentially, and their political views, if you control the, the, their access to information. And it's such a shame because, in fact you could give them access to an open internet where they could be creative, create their own material. So I'm glad that really India pushed back on the idea of giving people something, apology for it. Let's just go for it. Let's work to get the cost of connectivity down, the cost of devices and the cost of data plans down, and let's make it an open internet. So you'd rather have free access than limited access? I'd rather have Free in a sense, freedom. Freedom right. is important. Nobody expects it to be free, as in beer, uh, no cost. But we do need to get it low and affordable, whereas in many countries it's just not affordable. What about the perception some people have now that Facebook sort of is the web? And previously they had the idea that Google was the web, I think. Does that bother you that these big companies are sort of mixed up with the broader idea of the web? I think a lot of people are worried about those monopolies. I remember when the web first started, Netscape was really the only game in town, the only browser that was that most people had seen. People were terrified that, that in fact, Netscape had complete control. And then suddenly they were concerned about Microsoft having complete control of the browser and of the operating system. And then suddenly they were con- realized that they weren't concerned about Microsoft anymore, they were concerned about Google. And then they thought, oh, I'm not concerned about Google anymore because people spend all the time on Facebook. So I think the lessons are too... One is that, yes, it is a concern if one company gets to control the whole thing through monopoly, then it is the end of of innovation in the creative space that we know it. But secondly, that it's amazing how quickly our concern can switch from one company to another one. Those early concerns, going back to Netscape and Microsoft, were very much about corporate control of the web. And these days, um, I think there's probably more concern about governments exerting control, whether it's the Great Firewall in China, whether it's Turkey blocking whatever it wants to block this week, or Brazil blocking WhatsApp and, and so on. Were you pleased when Apple stood up to the uh, to the US government and said that it didn't want to help them break into a terrorist's iPhone? Yes, I think that was the correct uh, decision because I think that the ability for you and me to have an encrypted conversation, if we need to have that, is just such an important part of the whole way the world works, the way, we, the way we do our banking, the way the, the way banks talk to each other, the way, the way uh, families talk to each other. We just need that security. So one of the questions from one of our tweeters, uh, someone called Minty Walker, asks an even stronger version of that question, which is, do you think that encryption is actually a basic human right? Yes, I think that encryption has got to the point where the right to have a private conversation across the internet, uh, the right to use encrypted communication between two people is, a, is reasonable to put up there as a human right. Without the government having a right to a backdoor and being able to, to look into it, do you think there are ever circumstances where a backdoor is acceptable? When you make a backdoor which then sits there uh, with the key sitting under the doormat. The key's got to be somewhere. When you make it back door, then you can't tell who will go in there. So we've seen uh, foreign governments break into Western government agencies, keeping 
thing secure on the internet is really, really hard. The idea that you could have a backdoor which could only be used by one agency is crazy. And very, very dangerous for the future of, uh, of security on the web in general. Okay, let's turn to another uh, big controversy on the web at the moment, which is ad blocking. On the one hand, there are people who say ads have got out of control, they make the web too slow, hard to use. On the other hand, people say, yes, but without the ads, how are we going to support the content creators out there? Where do you stand on ad blocking? Uh, both of those cases. I, I agree far, thoroughly with both of those points of view. Uh, yes, they've gone out of control. Sometimes they're re really frustrating. But on the other hand, I think it's important to be able to get payment in some way to the people who create things. So one of the things which is interesting is, for example, uh, at wc.org slash payments, you can go and look at the work on payment protocols, which is happening. The idea there is actually it should be much easier to just tip somebody when you're reading an article which you like. We should be able to use many different payment methods, uh, be able to load them into our browser or into a phone and be able to select them easily and so make payments more smoothly, uh, maybe set up a machine to automatically tip people that, who, who, whose articles we like, for example, all kinds of alternative ways so that we can move away from the current assumption that the only way to make money on the web is by making ads and making horrible ones, <laughs> intrusive ones at that. So the um, one of the tip jar systems called Flatter has just got together with one of the ad blocking extensions, which may weirdly spread this custom at the same time as blocking ads. A couple of our tweeters, though, have asked a related question. One of them is called uh, Thilo Roth, and another is called Samuel Gujong, and another is called Ed Parch. And they all have the same question, which is, what do you think of Bitcoin? Are you a fan? I think that's a big, long, complicated question because there's the Bitcoin and there's the blockchain. I think that the blockchain technology is interesting. I think the Bitcoin as an investment is crazy because it's one of those, it's a bit like a dot-com bubble share where people only value it because they think other people will be crazy about it. That's another, it's 100% speculative in a way. So I think the bit that investing in Bitcoin is, it may be silly, but on the other hand, cryptographic currencies for getting money from one person to another across the planet with much less fees where a lot of people currently sort of sending money back to Haiti, for example, or tend to get ripped off at the moment. I think that sort of that, that thing is useful. More broadly, wearing your W3C hat, then, your position is let a thousand cryptocurrencies bloom. You would like there to be payment mechanisms, but you are not blessing any particular one of them. Exactly. The point of the, uh, of the web payments work is to provide a common user interface so the user experience is consistent and repeatable and therefore more secure, uh, but it can be used for any payment method. And one of our tweeters has asked the question, this is Sri Rangs, asks, if you could go back to 1989, what might you change about the way you built the web? And I wonder whether you might have wanted to put a payment protocol in right then, or was that the idea, not to have one? Well, so, uh, no, the idea was not not to have one. In other words, yes. So there was a, in fact, there was an error code that we put in there for meaning payment required as a sort of placeholder, because that, uh, the web is supposed to be universal. That means it's got to have everything. That means it's got to have free stuff and it's got to have to pay stuff. That was the original assumption. Well, you're also this year's winner of the Charleston EFG John Maynard Keynes Prize, which was created to celebrate the legacy of John Maynard Keynes by recognising individuals who make outstanding contributions to society in the interdisciplinary spirit of the great economist. Now, we actually have a member of the Keynes family, Sumaya Keynes, working on the staff at The Economist. You'll be astonished to hear that she's an economics correspondent. Um, and so I thought it would make sense to uh, have her uh, put a question to you as well. Um, so here's her question. She says, are you among the group of technologists 
technologists who favor a basic income, the idea of sort of paying everybody $10,000 a year or something like that, in response to the way that technology seems to be shifting the power balance in some industries away from ordinary workers? It's a yes-no question in a complicated area. So if you start off by paying everybody and you end up uh, that payment replaces for people earning more uh, part of their tax deduction, then one of the th advantages of that is it is a smooth system. One of the issues that we've had historically over the last th 30 years in a lot of Western countries is that you have all these different ways of getting giving money to people and then you have ways of taking a, a sometimes really obscure and borough ways of taxing them for obscure things. And it all gets way. too complicated. It all gets yeah. too complicated. Yeah. It, it seems to me as a you know, disclaimer, I am not an economist, but just as a person who designs systems, it seems to me that one of the things I'd like to have of a tax system is that there is no point where I earn another penny and I suddenly get taxed out thousands of pounds because I've just got to tax as a function of my, my income must be smooth. So this is one of two theories about why people in the tech industry in Silicon Valley are very keen on basic income. One is that they look at the tax code and say it's like a badly written computer program and they would like to be able to replace it with essentially one line that's much simpler. The other reason, though, is that they kind of feel guilty that the technologies that they're creating are increasing inequality and they want to sort of do something about it or, to be less charitable, they want to keep the pitchfork-wielding mobs at bay so they can go on inventing things. So I just wondered what you thought about the second part of the argument. Do you think that a basic income might be necessary to address sort of technologically driven inequality? I think a basic income is one of the ways of addressing well, the massive inequalities. But looking at the world, you do find that in this world, whether it is economists or technologists should uh, look at themselves guiltily, I'm not sure. But we should all look at uh, the fact that a very small number of people have ended up uh, controlling a huge amount of the income. So the inequality when it comes to individual personal income and, uh, and corporate wealth, I think a lot of people see as an issue. And in a way, I think Keynes as well saw the, uh, that actually in one of the blockers to, uh, to civilization, to growth, could be just some, simply inequality. And we, we clearly are in a very, very unequal situation. Are you worried about the sort of web equivalent of that, which is that more and more web activity seems to be going to a smaller and smaller number of very large websites? So it's as if, you know, Google and Facebook and those other big sites are the wealthy elite and then the teeny-weeny sites get less of a look-in than they used to. When the web started off, people were excited about the whole, the, this long-tail effect. When they looked at the most popular website and if it had a certain number of readers, you'd find the next most popular would have half that and the next most popular would have a third of that and, that, that, and then a quarter. And that gives you a very long tail. So, and so people, I thought, looked around at what was happening and the amount of creativity. And they sort of associated with that long tail. And now, yes, the long tail, alas, seems to be breaking. So, yes, I think it's an issue. I think that people are finding it frustrating also that they're using a small number of websites, that those websites can actually own and control all, the data, all their data, all their personal data as well. And they also decide what people see using these rather opaque algorithms. When you started the web, all pages were equal and the only way to get around was just clicking on links and getting from one to the next. And now we have the Google algorithm and the Facebook algorithm which determine what we see. And they weren't there at the beginning. Are you worried about oversight of that sort of control over what we see as well? Well, the very first search engines were hopeless. They were the laughing stock of the web because of those ridiculous things that they would give. You'd ask a personally reasonable question and they would come back pointing you to question pages which were totally ridiculous because they just looked at the words in a page. And so what you had to do was to 
follow links carefully and make links carefully. So the world learned to make links carefully and the world learned that if you made a blog, then it wasn't a good blog unless you linked to other good blogs as well. And of course, the Google algorithm initially just used those links. It just looked at the pattern of links instead of looking at the words and the pages. And it found the pattern of links because people were making these links very carefully. It found the pattern of links to be very valuable as a way of uh, picking out the gems, picking out the, the, the really representative web page on there. And so that's why Google was suddenly not a laughing matter at all and very serious and incredibly beneficial because of, the, of that algorithm. But now, typically, people spend a lot of time on a social networking site, or one or another, which is feeding them the comments of their friends. And sometimes it uh, starts exercising control over which comments it feeds them. If they have a limited reading time, which, which should be at the top. It can therefore control, to a certain extent, which social relationships end up being nurtured and which would tend to languish. They also try to feed them news and try to not only feed them news, but not just give them pointers to the news articles out on news sites like The Economist, but try to take a copy of the article and only let them try to keep them within the social networking site so they have their, them sitting looking at the, the same site all the time. Then obviously they have got tremendous control over a person's life, a person, what people think, what people's view of the world is. So, yes, I think it's a, that's a very worrying thing. Because the other way of looking at it is they're helping people find cool stuff. I mean, Google helps you find stuff you want to read, and Facebook is all about getting you to stay engaged. So isn't that, in some ways, an improvement over the original web where it was quite hard to find anything at all? Indeed, it's an improvement over not being able to find anything at all. But every now and again, it should for you a stretch friend or a, a stretch website. Most of the friends it, it recommends are just friends of friends. And kind of, yeah, it's obvious you're going to like that. But the, a stretch friend is something, somebody who is different from you in some important dimension. They're basically the same. They speak the same language they they maybe have the same uh profession but they're in the middle east and you're not and for example or they have a different religion they're in the same country uh and so so you think they should be recommended to you by these sites to yes, try, encourage well, you to imagine that the sites deliberately recommended to you people who are of a different culture who support the other football team <gasps> you know get stretch you Get, get you to put a bit of, and encourage you to put a bit of time into actually understanding where those people are coming from because we're not we're seeing it seems a lot of people feel in the uh, the world is getting a bit retrograde in the sense uh, in the openness to other ideas and acceptance of other cultures why well, is slipping so and, there's uh, an idea using algorithms to kind of increase the diversity of what people see online rather than reduce it indeed. Now, one of our tweeters, Franklin Eco, wanted to know what it was about the environment at CERN, the physics laboratory where you created the web, that made it so conducive to creativity and innovation. Ooh, lots of things, actually. It was a really good place to be. Partly, it was trying to solve really big problems. So they got lots of bright people there from all over the world. So there was a very uh, creative, innovative spirit, in a sense, that you had to try to... Because to, to, we'd never done this thing before, we had to do a lot of sort of uh, uh, bricolage... Uh, sort of DIY construction of things, great spirit. Secondly, it wasn't a hierarchical environment. It, there was no military sort of uh, overlay like, the, you know, imagine in NATO, everybody's told to use the same computer and they're all told which protocols to use and so on. Everything's designed from the top. At CERN, the people came from different universities. They came to collaborate very much as peers and nobody told the other person which computer to use. So they came with all kinds of different computers. So they had the problem of communicating in a heterogeneous, very heterogeneous world. 
they were early adopters, physicists are early adopters. They were people who had workstations and network connections before most people. So they were they were a great a petri dish for the early for the early web. And they were international, so they had when they went home to their individual institutes, they had the problems of communication uh, over distances. In many ways, CERN had lots of great reasons for being a good place to start a World Wide Web. And they're all rather difficult things for people who want to create a, a creative culture to, to emulate then, aren't they? But it means, what, diversity in the, in the workforce, certainly, um, hiring internationally. What does that mean if you want to foster that sort of creativity? But also uh, taking on massive challenges going for Mars, getting out into space. Actually, we have them closer to home, like climate change. And overall, are you optimistic, then, that um, we can reach out for those challenges and the web will help us overcome them? I'm not sure. I think it's really up to us. I've been very dismayed recently by reason of the way the political winds have been blowing towards people being xenophobic and introverted and not being just outreaching and not just not being nice <laughs> to other people in the planet. We had to learn to collaborate uh, internationally. I think partly building different sorts of websites might be some of, the, some of the ways we can do it. I think that if we really put our minds to it, that we can. We've got the tools. But we need to, to change our focus to being very much more motivated in terms of breaking down cultural barriers. You've recently called for everyone who uses the web to take an active role in protecting it. So what can ordinary web users do to help? Well, you can look at places like webfoundation.org to find and links to other groups of people who are looking at different aspects. You can be involved with getting people who are not connected online connected. You can get involved with keeping those who are connected connected in an open way. Fight for net neutrality. You can write to your MP saying that you think that the current law in the UK, which is being proposed by the government, is inappropriate uh, and it's going to uh, remove people's rights, uh, the rights of British citizens, for example. There is lots to do. So Tim Berners-Lee, thank you very much. My pleasure. That's it for The Economist Asks with me, Tom Standage. Tell us what you think by email to radio at economist.com, on Twitter at Economist Radio, and of course you can find us on the web, thank you Sir Tim, at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Goodbye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.